Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Thank you, Chicago, for this humbling victory. All I can say, you sure know how to make a guy feel at home. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, there's the brown line, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor, Benny J, take it away. It is as we speak. Oh, here it is. Friday, May 29, 2020. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Of course, you could be listening to this at absolutely any time in the universe. It is a podcast. The headlines in today's papers, uh, my beloved bright one, home delivered as always. Opening days. D-A-Z-E. Get it, D? Days. 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 Yeah, like getting high. Yeah, like getting high. A pun. P-U-N in the <laughs> Sun-Times. How shocking is that? Anyway, of course, the, that is uh, alluding to the fact that Illinois is finally opening up. Uh, Governor Pritzker announced that on June 1st, the state will move to, move to phase three. A little more uh, businesses, more businesses will get to open. And Lori Leifert, mayor of the city of Chicago, uh, has uh, followed up with an announcement that Chicago will open up on uh June 3rd, I guess. So it's June 1st for the state, June 3rd for Chicago. Anyway, uh, bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I always do, I ask my guest to uh, introduce her or himself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Ben. Excited to be here. My name is Greta Neubauer. I am a state representative from Wisconsin, District 66, which is all in the city of Racine. And I'm excited to be here to talk about everything going on in, in Wisconsin right now. Yes, we've been uh, advertising and promoting Greta's appearance in the show for quite a while. Just a little backup. Our dear friend Miles Conflassen told me about uh, two weeks ago, Greta, you got to get Greta on the show. Miles, of course, is a regular on my show. In fact, when I'm done interviewing you, Greta, I'll be interviewing Miles. Uh, and Very uh, fun. Like so, hanging out. He likes hanging out. And uh, so I'm really happy we hooked this up. We talk a lot. Okay, we are, once again, we are a Chicago-based podcast. Um, my utter obsession is Chicago politics. I've been writing, covering Chicago politics for five billion years, more or less. Uh, at the moment, I'm uh, doing my show from my attic, uh, Greta. Uh, but usually we do it from the Chicago Sun-Times. They have a little studio for us. Been in my attic since the pandemic mm -hmm. hit. Uh, but uh, we talk a lot about Wisconsin politics. And we have the view of Wisconsin from the South. So we're looking at you from Illinois and lefties like myself are always wondering what is going on in Wisconsin? And so Miles said, you got to get Greta on. She can help you understand politically what's happening in Wisconsin, what the situation is now with the Democratic governor and Republican legislators, what the hope is for the future with the Democratic Party maybe making uh, or having a revival in, uh, in the state and maybe winning back some of these uh, races in November. So these are sort of the things we'll be discussing. But why don't we start, Greta? Why don't you uh, introduce yourself and your district uh, to our listeners? Tell uh, people a little bit about yourself. This is the first time you've ever been on our show. Absolutely. 
So I am from Racine, born and raised, and we are not far from you. We're in southeastern Wisconsin. I grew up taking the train down to Chicago as a kid, so quite familiar with the city as well. Racine is a city of about 80,000 people. We're on Lake Michigan. Um, it, much like many of our neighboring communities, is you know longtime manufacturing union stronghold. In recent years, we have been struggling as many of those jobs have left. Um, high unemployment, rates of racial inequality. Um, Racine's a, a diverse community. We have historically really seriously invested in our public schools and public infrastructure, um, you know, really doing our best in this moment to return to that tradition despite some challenges at the state level with that goal. And um, what else do I have to say that's fun? We have, there's a documentary about racing called World's Greatest Prom, would recommend prom not happening this year, Fourth of July parade not happening this year. But, um, you know, racing, racing likes to celebrate as well. <laughs> All right. So what's the name of the documentary again? It's called World's Best Prom. World. Everyone, all the high school seniors from the entire city come down to Festival Hall, where I happen to go to get tested for COVID today. Different vibe right now. Wow. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. It's, it's quite a celebration. So. Our seniors are disappointed they don't get it, but, you know, hopefully can celebrate in other ways right now. <laughs> uh, all right. So now uh, tell people a little bit about yourself. Uh, how long have, yeah, you, how sure. long have you been a state rep and what were the circumstances in which you became a state rep? Go ahead. Tell your story. Sure. Yeah. So as I said, I'm from Racine and certainly grew up seeing its strengths and weaknesses. Um, I started knocking on doors at a pretty young age as a kid. My parents were involved in politics. and so really came to understand that world. Um, left for college, and that was right about when Barack Obama was getting elected, um, a campaign that I'd done a lot of work on in Wisconsin. And I became disillusioned with the political process and saw all the ways in which leaders either weren't willing or able to take action on the things that I cared about, that my generation cared about, um, you know, not long after Black Lives Matter movement took off, I became really politicized also around the urgency of the climate crisis and so started doing movement work and really found my political home in the youth climate movement. Um, was doing that work for a number of years after graduating um, with young people and in kind of the economic democracy space. And then Trump got elected. <laughs> And many of us in the climate movement realized, you know, that we we believed our movement and our work needed to shift. And it moved in many ways off campuses and um, into the political sphere. So I decided to move home. You know, I realized, oh, people don't just talk to me about Wisconsin because I'm from here. They talk to me about Wisconsin because everyone in the country realizes how important it is. Uh, everybody's kind of obsessed with it in the political world. And so um, decided to come back, got involved here in a number of campaigns. I started working in the Capitol really to get a sense of, okay, do I think this is a place <laughs> that both I want to be and that, that organizers should be moving towards in this political moment and decided, yes, 
Um, you know, there are so many reasons why we need organizers in office, um, many related to what's going on at the federal level, but also here in Wisconsin, you know, we could spend all day talking about gerrymandering and some of the other dynamics here. And I know that the only thing that's going to overcome those is, is strong movement. So do what I can and still learning and growing into this, but to try to support and build the kind of movements that we're going to need to turn things around in Wisconsin. Um, and of course, also wanted to work on climate change, which Wisconsin basically ignored the entire time Scott Walker was in office. So spend a lot of time working on that issue as well, which is important to my district, important to the state. You know, I've mentioned we had a, a large outmigration of jobs, you know, huge opportunity for us in terms of mitigation and, and resiliency work around climate, um, decreasing that inequities in our state through investing in, in green jobs and the green economy. So ran in a special election about two years ago, a little over two years ago, knocked a ton of doors, sent a bunch of mailers, and here we are. <laughs> well, let me, and I'm listening to your story, and it reminds me of a story of a lot of, of, of millennials that I know. And let me just sort of distill it and get your response to my distillation to see if I think I'm accurate. Uh, so many millennials yeah. I know, so many people of your generation uh, became aware politically when they were thinking sort of like the great issues uh, that affect mankind, civilization at this moment, mm -hmm. like climate change is the one that you uh, pointed out. Uh, and so they got involved uh, in, with organizations that worked on these really important worldwide issues. And then there became a, came a realization. And I, for Wisconsin, it was this. 2016, you mentioned Donald Trump was victorious in Wisconsin. I trace the victory of Donald Trump mm -hmm. in 2016 to Scott Walker's victory in 2010, uh, which then mm -hmm. followed up with the Republicans seizing both houses of the state house in Wisconsin, the Senate and the the, the House of Representatives, whatever you call the House of Representatives, mm -hmm. is what we call in Illinois. And as a result, they could gerrymander the, the map, they could undercut unions, they could pass uh, anti-collective bargaining laws, gutting the union's power and diminished, uh, as a result, the standing of the Democratic Party. And lo and behold, in 2016, people wake up to see that Wisconsin had gone to Donald Trump. And as a result, along with Michigan and Pennsylvania, where basically the same process happened, the Democrats lost. And so much of it, uh, Greta, can be linked to the fact that Democrats sort of fell asleep on the local level and let themselves mm. to be outmaneuvered by Republicans. Uh, what's your response to my distillation? I think that's that's exactly right. And, you know, we saw it over the course of my lifetime, Republicans learn a lot about grassroots organizing, about building from the bottom up. And I think you're you're right that the Democrats were asleep at the switch on that. And so we have a lot of work to do to catch up. You know, I'll also say, which you understand, and I think people in the Midwest understand, but I don't know that the entire country does. Wisconsin was a testing ground for the Koch brothers, for their investments, for their policies. And that was very intentional. They chose a few states and they said, we are going to destroy unions. We are going to buy elections, everything from political elections to nonpartisan elections, Supreme Court, case in point. Um, and so we've got a lot of work to do here and it is really hard when the rules are rigged against you, as you said, particularly with gerrymandering. It's something that 
you know, I think about every day, <laughs> every single issue that we are working on, we have to contend with gerrymandering because having public support isn't enough. Um, you know, having people show up, having movements show up, having, you know, 70% of support, the public support the Medicaid expansion, it isn't enough. So it's really challenging to organize and to pass progressive policy in a context like this. But I remain hopeful. People in Wisconsin are resilient, and uh, we've had some important victories in the last few years that make me believe that people have had enough and things are going to keep trending in the right direction. All right. Well, let's get before we get to the important victories. Let's let's take a little deeper dive in the whole gerrymandering issue and and sort of help people understand what's at stake here. Uh, every ten years, there was a new census, and as a result of the new census, there's a legislative redistricting process uh, that goes on in every state in the country, uh, and every, cities do it as, as well with their wards or their. Uh, but we're concentrating on states. Uh, if the Republicans are in a position of power to draw the maps they can draw the maps in such a way as to maximize their political advantage. They can gerrymander the maps so that it's in uh, their advantage. If the Democrats are in control, uh, they can do the same. What happened in Wisconsin is that the Republicans got to draw the maps uh, about uh, eight years ago or so. And as a result, uh, even though most people, correct me if I'm wrong, Greta, most people will vote Democrat in legislative races, uh, the Republicans end up with a majority. Am I correct in all that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really clearly demonstrated in the last election. You know, I will say that we, uh, the Democratic caucus, ran candidates in more seats. But in the midterm election, we won 54% of the vote and 36% of the seats. Wow. So pretty stark, right? Um, you can say, oh, well, you ran more candidates, but it's still the case that for the people who showed up to vote, that's, that's the breakdown. Um, and so I absolutely believe that if we weren't in a gerrymandered, <laughs> uh, weren't in a gerrymandered state, the legislature would look really different. We won every constitutional office last year, um, sorry, two years ago in the midterm, and we won, you know. Uh, one additional seat in the legislature. Wow. And I don't know how that's going to change in 2020, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves uh, by worrying about the elections to come. Let's talk about what life is like uh, for a Democrat like yourself, a progressive like yourself, in a legislature that's controlled by Republicans. Talk about what your existence is like and the existence of other Democrats uh, in the State House of Wisconsin. Absolutely. Well, you know, right now we are we are ramping up in election season, and so I'll say something to you that I say to folks I'm trying to recruit for the legislature right now, which is it is not easy. Um, you need to be ready for things to be really disappointing. Um, since I've been elected, we've had the lame duck session in which Republicans, um, knowing that they were going to lose the governorship to Tony Evers after he was elected, um, change the rules, right, including rules that are currently hamstringing our ability to deal with our unemployment system and and other critical services, Um, refusing disability accommodations to one of my colleagues, um, saying that it was all a political act. I mean, the bar is low here. It's hard. But also, as I said, I, I see people being so resilient in the face of that. And there are a lot of opportunities 
through being in office to change the conversation. I knew when I ran for office that I was not going to be able to show up and immediately pass the Wisconsin Green New Deal. But I also knew that we needed to have those conversations and that people were looking for things to be involved in and things to feel hopeful about. And so a lot of my job is that. It, it is working on policy in the Capitol, but it is also working on the campaign side, recruiting candidates, supporting other candidates, um, and working with movements and trying to support uh, public engagement on the issues that people care about the most in Wisconsin. When you say that the Republicans changed the rules uh, governing the, mm-hmm. the legislature, can, can you be a little more specific? What rules, what are some of the rules they changed? Oh, so many. I'll, I'll point to some of the recent um, rule changes that were actually tied to the eventual um, compromised disability accommodations that they gave to one of my colleagues which make it easier for them to attempt to override a veto of the governor. An example being that historically you've had one chance in in the legislature to override a governor's veto. They changed it such that they can do that multiple times. So maybe they try once to override you know, a budget veto from last year. It doesn't work. They look around 20 minutes later, they realize three Democrats are in the bathroom. They try again, <laughs> right? So those kind of, uh, those kind of roles, uh, you know, continue to be changed. Um, a number of powers, important powers were taken away from the governor and attorney general in particular um, during the lame duck session. Um, before the lame duck session, the governor would have been able to move forward with expanding Medicaid afterwards it required uh, legislative action. And so we haven't expanded Medicaid, um, which let me tell you, would have been really helpful right now in the middle of a global pandemic. So a number of um, really, really significant changes happened in the middle of the night. And their hope was that no one would notice. People did. People were upset about it. And I believe, I have to believe, (laughs) and I think there's good evidence that people have not forgotten about that. And they've not forgotten about um, and will remember what's going on right now and and how Republicans are choosing to handle COVID-19. Well, let's talk about that uh, before I get into some of the how how Dems and progressives can rectify the situation. Uh, We've been following Mm -hmm. this from afar. uh, What's been happening in Wisconsin in ways and the way the legislature uh, attempted to undercut your governor, Governor Evers, and his stay-at-home uh, orders. Talk about it. Give us a little more specifics. What did the Republican legislators do to undercut the ability of the governor uh, to protect people in the state? Mm-hmm. So really two major moments, um, court cases, the first being around the elections in April. So first the governor called a special session, said legislature, please go in, please meet and find a way to safely conduct the election or postpone it. Um, Republicans gaveled out in under a minute, did nothing. And then um, Governor Evers uh, used his emergency powers to postpone the election. And then, of course, there was the extremely dramatic uh, case going to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, federal Supreme Court, um, really quickly um, over the course of, I think it was, I don't know, 24 hours right before the election. Um, 
giving giving everybody, of course, uh, a lot of concern about being able to safely conduct an election. Um, ultimately, the the Supreme Court at uh, the federal level said the election will go on. The governor does not have the authority to make that decision. And so people in Wisconsin went to the polls um, with truly the world watching. Um, you know, one of the most stark examples of voter suppression being Milwaukee, where they were down to five polling places, you know, hours long wait. Many parts of the state ballots didn't arrive in time because people, you know, desperately tried to request them quickly. Um, there were bagged ballots found after the election um, in, in, you know, by the Postal Service. Uh, it was it was chaos. It was full chaos. Um, you know, uh, an image that I hope we continue to remember in Wisconsin is the Speaker of the Assembly, who, of course, um, led this this effort to keep the election on that date um, out in full PPE, you know, full gown, telling people on election day that it was incredibly safe to go out and vote. Um, so incredibly, people did show up and vote despite attempts to keep them at home. And happy to talk a little bit more about those uh, results in a minute. The other, um, the other big moment, I would say, big uh, conflict has been over our safer at home order. So, you know, again, I can't emphasize enough, this really is not partisanship as usual. Um, you know, even in Congress, they're able to compromise and get things done on COVID-19. But here in Wisconsin, we, you know, had Republicans um, delay in going into session, mean that we lost $25 million in CARES funding for UI, which, let me tell you, we could really use. Um, and then in the safer at home order, um, Republicans had the ability to actually, you know, negotiate, to come into session and, and pass a resolution to even overturn the safer at home order or make changes. But they didn't want to do that. They didn't actually want to vote and take responsibility. And so they they started a lawsuit. They passed it off to the Supreme Court, knowing that the Wisconsin Supreme Court, knowing that it was stacked in their favor, um, saying, all we want is a seat at the decision-making table, right? Um, then the uh, safer at home order is overruled, immediately um, declared to be null and void. And it was revealed that Republicans had no plan for how to keep people safe and no intention to work with our side to create rules of any kind. So um, Wisconsin has a patchwork of local regulations, much of the state with no rules of any kind um, and no guidance. So it's been, it's been demoralizing. It's been tough. And, and this is happening in the context of really significant increases in cases, um, including my community. Uh, we have some of the most rapidly growing numbers in the state. And um, we're really concerned. We're not seeing any effort by by the Republicans to come to the table and work with us on this. I, I truly don't know what's going to happen if cases increase at this rate. And we need to take more action because we haven't seen them be willing to compromise in a bipartisan way on All right, really so anything. Uh, help me out here. I've momentarily elapsed and forgotten the name of the leader of the Republican Party in the General Assembly. What's his name? Um, Robin Voss. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. How, did, how could I forget that? Mm-hmm. Uh, he His mm-hmm. district is very close to yours. Before we get into uh, uh, Robin, let me just make sure, really bring this home for everybody. So the Republicans went to court to argue that the Democratic governor of Wisconsin, Evers, had overextended his authority by implementing a stay-at-home order without uh, asking them uh, for their participation in this. And so they were pointing to the fact that we have enshrined in our Constitution a constitutional protection of the division between the executive and the legislative branch. And you cannot have an executive acting on his own without approval from the legislative. It is a fundamental precept of the United States Constitution. And they found the Supreme Court said, yeah, Robin, we agree with you. The governor exceeded his mm-hmm. uh, authority. And so now the leg- he has to work with the legislators. Having won that right, having had that constitutional authority declared valid by the greatest legal minds that the state of Wisconsin can find, they have not gotten together to exercise it? Is that what you're telling me? No. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Greatest legal minds, by the way, who during this debate said that this was, um, I can't give you the exact quote, but, you know, referenced tyranny and also made comparisons to the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II um, and the safer at home order. Wow, man. I, listen, man, I'm now going to defend uh, the greatest legal minds. <laughs> this, no, I, I can't find a defense of Grant. I just find it really uh, hypocritical that old boy Robin went to court to win this right and then just did nothing mm-hmm. once he had the right. And yeah. and, and as a result, and, you, you're going yeah. Oh, just, just, you know, you're, you hit the nail on the head, right? You <laughs> they won't even stand by their position. Um, they won't even take a vote on this. And I think that's because they know what's going to happen. I mean, we all know what's going to happen. Nothing has changed about the, um, about the coronavirus in the last few months. Yes, we are more equipped to deal with its impact. Thank goodness. But the virus is still going to spread if people are sitting and eating next to each other in restaurants or going to bars or hanging out in parks. Mm-hmm. And um, they know that. They know that. And they refuse to take any responsibility, but will continue down their ideological path. <laughs> well, I, okay. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what their overall strategy is. Like how they think, I know, okay, let's put aside for the moment the notion that they uh, take seriously their role and responsibility in protecting people in Wisconsin from the virus. Let's mm-hmm. put that aside. Clearly, they don't. They won't even, they were given the authority by the finest legal minds that the state of Wisconsin could find, gave them this authority, and they have done nothing with it. So let's put that aside. How do they think they could turn this into a winning issue in the upcoming campaigns? So it's a really interesting question. And I guess what I'll say is that they are really used to operating in a very gerrymandered state, right? They are not used to have <laughs> having to appeal to the majority of Wisconsinites. And I think that they are just so deep in that hole and it's hard for them to pull their heads out of the sand and realize that um, that's not how the campaign for president works. They actually 
you know, it's not gerrymandered. Yeah, there's voter suppression in Wisconsin for sure. But, you know, they are used to saying, you know, I referenced it, I referenced it earlier, no to the Medicaid expansion despite overwhelming public support. Um, to many, you know, to significant increases in public school funding, to many other popular proposals that we've put forward. Um, because they're, they don't have to be accountable because the districts are drawn in such a way that they only really need to speak to their own, um, most hardcore base. And that's what gerrymandering does. That's what these attacks on our democratic process have done. You know, when I ran for office, I didn't think I was going to spend so much time talking about the importance of democracy and the integrity of the institution. Um, I, you know, I took that for granted to some extent. And I thought I was going to be working on, you know, what are typically considered the most progressive issues. But I think all of us in Wisconsin um, know something that the rest of the country is also having to come to grips with, which is that um, democracy can be manipulated and, and it really does matter that we actually, uh, that we actually invest in its integrity, or we have a lot to lose. All right. Now, uh, let's look forward a little bit and talk about uh, what Democrats can do to counter this. Uh, a day doesn't pass, Greta, where I don't get an email uh, from various uh, Democratic uh, operatives telling me, pointing out uh, victories that the Democrats have had in districts that had been Republican. And generally, they, they okay. are victorious in those districts by running more or less moderate uh, Democrats who let's say believe in a woman's right to choose, but may not be of the AOC uh, variety when it comes uh, to economic issues. Uh, is mm -hmm. that a strategy, do you think, that the Democrats can employ to win back some of these gerrymandered seats in which Republicans win by just appealing to the most MAGA, a MAGA hat wearing uh, base members? I guess what I'll say is that people in Wisconsin have felt the impacts of Trump's presidency. Um, people of color have felt the impact in terms of increasing uh, implications and overt racism and policies. Farmers have felt the implications of tariffs. Um, you know, people who work in the manufacturing sector and industry have felt the implications. And so my hope um, and I think that there's, um, there's also an important, uh, conversation related to COVID in this vein is that Democrats actually put forward policies that speak to people's real experience. And we have certainly been trying to do that here. You know, I'll, I'll point to the fact that Bernie Sanders won the primary, um, against Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, that's the Democratic base, but, I think it's, it's important and it says something about people here, which is that we have actually a long and strong history of, of populist government, um, of progressive government. And I think there is a real appetite for things to change. Um, and some people thought <laughs> that that was going to come through President Trump. And hopefully they have learned that that was not the case. And that, and I hope our side, you know, has learned that we need to put forward the kind of visionary policies that actually speak to the economic circumstances people are in, in Wisconsin. 
Yeah, I hope the Democrats learn a few lessons as well. Uh, so let's talk about Jill Karofsky's victory. Uh, that mm -hmm. I, I've always believed that the the heavy-handed Republican tactics uh, from the uh, the April ele special election or the April election was really about winning that Supreme Court seat and uh, having mm -hmm. uh, Jill Karofsky defeated by. Uh, uh, the Trump supporter whose name I um, um, it's like my Ben forget Republicans Dan names. Kelly. Oh, how did I forget <laughs> Danny Kelly? Uh, I want to apologize. There's to, a lot of them. Uh, mm -hmm. A great legal mind from the state of Wisconsin, Dan Kelly. Um, so uh, uh, Karofsky defeated Kelly, and I was I got I had to tip my hat uh, to the state of Wisconsin. I thought for sure once they were once they rigged the rules. Uh, to make it like a, a life-threatening moment to go out and vote, you know, I'm saying, oh, man, these, these these Republicans, they're slick. They figured it out. This is how Kelly's going to win. And Karofsky yeah. stunned me, man. I was so excited on Election Day. It was like, what's going on in Wisconsin? <laughs> did it, Were you surprised by that as well, or did you uh, have greater faith in the system uh, in Wisconsin? Go ahead, Greta. I was surprised. I was surprised. I mean, I think part of it for me was just feeling so demoralized. You know, as I as I said, since I for my entire adult life, the bar has been continually lowered by Republicans in Wisconsin. But saying to people, "Yep, you have to risk your life, the life of a you know compromised family member, an older parent, etc.," to go out and vote. You know, that's a new low. That's a new low. And so what was so incredible about her election, about Jill Kroski's election, was that the margins by which she won, which was 10 points, she won 55% of the vote, which is incredible in a state in which normally we are seeing really slim margins. Trump won 47.2 over 46.5 in Wisconsin. It's been similarly close margins for um, a number of races over the last few years. And so I really do believe that people saw what Republicans were up to. They, they had a moment, you know, it's, it's one of those moments where you stop and say to yourself, I actually kind of can't believe that this is happening, that, that we have sunk to this low. And so as I said, of the lame duck session and, and a number of these other moments, I am hopeful that that what that means is that people have said, enough is enough. You know, I am not willing to risk my life to participate in an election again. And I'm going to vote for people who are not going to put me in that position. So I think that's really hopeful um, for the fall election. I'm excited about, about that outcome. All right, I think this is a good a point as ever to uh, end the interview because it's a positive uh, a point. Uh, Greta, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, I'm going to be bugging you again, you, uh, bringing you back on the show, give us updates from the great state of Wisconsin, all right? How about that? Thank you. It's, it's been great to talk. I'm, I'm always excited to talk about Wisconsin, and um, best of luck with, with everything going on in Chicago right now as well. Yeah, we'll try to stay safe and sound. That's Greta Newbar. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.